This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard, it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I heard Tim Keller say one time uh, in a sermon, uh, he's a pastor in New York, many of us have heard of before, and he shared a story about after a sermon he preached one time, a woman came up to him afterwards, it's an unbelieving woman, and she she asked him uh, to explain more uh, grace, how does it work? And as they were talking, he said he realized that she really got it, and she understood it, and maybe even more than some believers. And this is how he knew that she got it. When it really clicked in her mind, her response was, wow, grace is a really scary thing. And he said, well, why do you say that? She said, well, if it's true that there's a God and that God saves me, through Jesus by his grace and there's nothing I do to earn that, then that means there's no limit to what he can ask from me. You see, and that's when he knew she got it. Because if God gives you rules, and in that sense, he's sort of like a a business partner with a contract. And as long as you uphold your end of the bargain, then you're good. You're good with God. And that's really the type of God that she wanted. She wanted to know how she needed to behave in order to mark that box and then live as she wanted over here, right? She wanted both at the same time. Tell me what to do so that I can say, okay, well, God's cool with that in a contractual way, and now I can really functionally be my own God in my life. And I think if we're honest, we all have that proclivity uh, to doing the least required to get by, even in our relationship with God. Now, of course, there are times, uh, like physicians, for example, uh, follow the principle of what's called minimum effective dosage, right? I mean, so if you need a drug for something and it only takes two units to get the desired outcome, then don't give eight units, right? We wouldn't want that. We would want two. So, of course, there's a time and a place where we may think of something like the minimum effective dosage. But what I'm talking about and what Jesus is getting at today is when we're talking about relationships, and particularly, we're talking about a relationship with God, we must not treat him as though he is a business partner with a contract. 
We must not treat him as though he's a dispenser of rules. Because if you are good at reading a contract and writing a contract and interpreting a contract, you can actually domesticate God. You can actually make him your whipping boy. Or at, or at least what you could do is you could say, hey, I checked all the boxes, so God should be good with me, and I can go do this over here. And the reason this is so crucial is because the way we view God and our relationship with him, it will shape the way we interact with him. Moment by moment, we'll be shaped. The way we lean into God, the way we think of God will be shaped by the way we understand him to be. Now, in this portion in the Sermon on the Mount, we're in the, the very center, the main argument of the sermon. And what we see now is Jesus taking the Beatitudes and taking this call to be salt and light if you're his kingdom people. And he's now making an argument that, in fact, the Pharisees had misinterpreted the law. And the way they had misinterpreted the law was by trivializing the law so that they could manage to keep it, look holy, and actually do what they wanted. It's just fascinating. Say that again. They had trivialized the law in such a way where they could minimize it so that they could keep it, so that they could do what they wanted on the side and live however they desired. And Jesus is speaking against that. Commentators and scholars call this section the section of antitheses. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but actually it's really this way. And he's not, Jesus is not disagreeing with Moses. He's disagreeing with the Pharisees' interpretation of Moses. And so I want to make two preliminary comments before we look at these antitheses where Jesus uses divorce and oaths. The first thing I want to say is I want to tell you and set your expectations up front, this sermon is not a sermon about the ins and outs of divorce. Okay, that would be a good sermon that I should preach sometime, but not today. All right, so that's not what this sermon is about. And I think that's important to let you know because I know that divorce is a very, very sensitive subject. Some of you, because of someone you know or yourself in your past or present, you have a lot of questions about divorce and you ha may have a pricked conscience about it. And if that's true, I would invite you, come talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. But I at least wanna tell you up front that that's not mainly what I'm trying to do today to say here are the seven uh, things about biblical divorce, okay? So I wanted to say that because I know that it was important to say that. The second thing is you may be confused outright why we're taking divorce and oaths together. So I'm gonna try to make an argument in the end as to why I'm taking them together. Uh, but at most basically, if a person breaks a marriage, they're breaking a vow. At least one party, maybe both, is breaking a vow or a promise they made, which means they didn't tell the truth or they failed to uphold their word. And so at least in that way, it goes together. But the main reason I'm taking them together is because I believe the impulse that the Pharisees have in their incorrect interpretation of these two commandments, that impulse comes from the exact same place for the exact same reason. So that's why I'm taking them together, okay? So I'm gonna try to argue for that as we go along. Uh, really, I have two principles today. I won't even call them points because that would be too general. They're really principles. And so they're gonna be up there in sentences. And the first principle, I'm gonna spend three quarters of the time on. Then the second principle, we're gonna finish with, okay? So this is the first principle. The wrong preoccupation based on the wrong foundation leads to a foolish path, all right? 
The wrong preoccupation based on the wrong foundation leads to a foolish path. Now, if you notice in divorce, for example, Jesus starts off by quoting them. It's in, it's in quotes. He says, it was also said, because he's continuing on from anger and lust. He said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So they're preoccupied with this question. Jesus. Well, in a second, I'll get to that. In Matthew, uh, later on in Matthew, Matthew 19, I'm going to read a passage. They're going to ask Jesus to get involved in this debate that's going on with divorce. But this particular quote is a, is a quote of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Now, if you go back and read the first few verses in Deuteronomy, it's a very specific piece of case law, meaning that it wasn't talking even about divorce in general, although you could learn precedence from case law. It was talking about a specific instance of a specific type of divorce. And at the beginning, Moses says in Deuteronomy 24 uh, that there can be given a certificate of divorce. But when you go back and read it, we're not going to read it today. It's, it's a little confusing and ambiguous, which is why there were multiple schools of thought in Jesus' day on what exactly Moses meant and how it might be applied to divorce in general. So what I want to do to expand this a little bit is I do, I'm going to flip over to Matthew 19, and I'm going to read you about a, com- read about a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees about divorce, building on this sermon, okay? So this is Matthew 19, starting in verse 3, it says, And the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife, listen to this, for any cause? That's a different, little bit of a different question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And you see, right there, they clue us in that they're inviting Jesus in to a very specific debate. You see, in this day and age, divorce was very common. It's very common, even among Jews, okay? And there were three main interpretations of Deuteronomy 24, and they want to know which one Jesus takes. And they're hoping he'll get it wrong and he'll offend somebody and get killed like John the Baptist. Remember why John the Baptist was beheaded? Because he pointed out someone's adultery. So what they're really hoping is they can, they can trick Jesus, and he can say the wrong thing, and then maybe they can just expedite this death of him because they wanted to get rid of him. Well, we'll see that Jesus won't even, he's just too smart for that. He's too wise. But listen to this, this quote from the Mishnah, which was just a group of Jewish writings uh, in this time. And it Quickly, I'm going to quote from it, lays out the three main schools of thought when it comes to divorce in this day and age. The first was from a, a teacher named Shammai, and he says this, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, meaning sexual unchastity or uh, unfaithfulness, okay? So we might call that the more conservative position in our own language, although it might be anachronistic to call it that then. The second one is the school of Hillel, and he says... A man may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. And if you think that's shallow, uh, another rabbi says, he may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. Or prettier, we might say. You see, divorce was common, and they want to know, Jesus, where do you stand? Where do you stand, particularly on Deuteronomy 24? They kind of tip their, tip their hat, by the way, by saying, isn't it not lawful for divorce for any cause? And Jesus won't even go there because he realizes the Pharisees have become preoccupied with grounds for divorce when they should have been thinking about God's design 
for marriage. And that's exactly where he goes. He says, well, from the beginning, it was not so. And he tries to turn their gaze from the wrong question to the right question, from the wrong preoccupation to the right preoccupation. You see, their preoccupation is that they were searching for a loophole and circumventing the entire purpose of marriage, right, so that they could check the box and live how they wanted, so that they could say, no, 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 I, I can do this. I can, I can leave my spouse. Moses said so, right? And then I can go over here and do whatever I want. They want both at the same time. What's the minimum requirement, Jesus? Let's just cut to the chase because I'm actually not too interested in having a Lord or a God. I'm really just interested in living how I want and being okay with God when it's convenient. But you see, Jesus is very clear. God doesn't make, God doesn't uh, bargain. God doesn't bargain. God invites in. God tells us where flourishing is. And we either respond or reject it. Well, then they say, maybe Jesus, but if that's true, then why did Moses say, give them a certificate of divorce? And I just imagine Jesus in that moment having this deep look of sadness on his face and compassion. And this is what he says. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce. The Greek word there, when I read it this week, it's scleros. And when I read that, the first thing that came to my mind was atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis. You see, it's two Greek words, and it means, in English, that word, hardening of the arteries. Scleros, same word. And the first thing that came to my mind was, it was because of their heart disease. That's what he means when he says, because of your hardness of heart. And no one glories in heart disease. No one says, well, I'll take a certificate of divorce because I want heart disease. Doesn't matter to me. That's flourishing. Heart disease is flourishing. I can live however I want. And Jesus is like, you, no, you, you missed it. You don't seek heart disease. That's not flourishing, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about kingdom life. It's about flourishing, you see, what they wanted, what they wanted was marriage to be a light thing so that they could push it aside based on their own judgment as long as they have that crucial clause that says, it's okay. And some of them take a fool's bargain and say, I'll take heart disease if I can have this woman and leave this woman. That's fine. I'll take heart disease. And Jesus is saying, you missed it. So you see what happened is the wrong preoccupation moved them to a shaky foundation. All of a the sudden, they are God. Their foundation of their life is them, is their view of reality as opposed to God's. And so the Pharisees turned Moses' concession for our heart disease into a command and therefore trivialized marriage. You know, the, I was thinking about, you know, we might think, well, that's really pre, pre you know, uh, primitive, right? We don't do that kind of thing anymore. So I, I printed off eight points of an article that I was pointed out to me in my study this week. Uh, it's called uh, The Eight Times It's Okay to Leave a Partner, or we could say spouse. So I want to read some of these to you. Number one reason, if you're unhappy and it's clearly because of the relationship. Like that's called like before 9 a.m. for me, <laughs> right? That's what that's called. Um, 
Number two, the good times are outweighed by the bad. Well, here's their commentary. You loved your partner because of all the good times you had, all of the fun you had, and all the wonderful memories you created. If the only memories you are now creating sting your heart and bring tears to your eyes, then your best option may be to walk out the door and leave it behind. Okay. Three, uh, you have lost trust in your partner. That happens a lot, right? I mean, it, unless we trivialize, I mean, that should happen whenever I don't keep my word at all. Maybe you don't trust me anymore. Does that mean I can leave my spouse? And by the way, a partner is someone you go into business with, not who you get married to. Four, your partner doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated. Can we all just say praise God that they don't? <laughs> Five, your partner cheated on you. That, I think Jesus says that's legitimate. You, you can consider it then, but it's not a command. Again, the concession is not a command. Even if your spouse cheats on you, I get nervous personally and pastorally even when that happens and the, the, the person who was cheated on, the, 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 um, the least of these in that case, um, I get a sense that they actually kind of wanted that the whole time and this is their way out. Makes me really nervous. But it's true, there is a concession there, but that's not what the sermon's about. Next, you fell in love with someone else. It happens. You've been with a person for a while and then someone else comes into your life and takes your breath away. We can't always help whom we fall in love with. And when it happens, we should follow our hearts. That affects you more than you think it does. We may scoff at that so shallow. You're affected by that. And I'll talk more about that in a second. Last one here. You're not capable of loving your partner the way your partner deserves to be loved. Oh, wow. So self-sacrificial, isn't it? <laughs> this is the commentary. You may love your partner with all of your heart, but when you know you're neither in the right place nor the right state of mind to be the person your partner needs you to be, then you must let your partner go. What a martyr. And so again, it's worth mocking. It's absolutely worth mocking. And any pro true prophetic voice will mock that list except maybe for sexual immorality, okay? But I want you to know that in our mocking, it also should promote humility. And the reason is, is because the TV shows that we watch, the music we listen to, anything in pop culture believes that, mostly, and tells us that. And we think we're buffered. We think we're protected from it, but you're not. It affects you more than you think. And you'll hear it in your thinking, and someone can point it out to you. And they'll say, no, no, where did that come from? It come from the Bible. Be careful. You're preoccupied with the wrong thing. You might find yourself on the wrong foundation and therefore being led down a foolish path. Listen, we all know even Christian people who got divorced out of nowhere. And when asked why, they give very similar reasons to that list. And you think, where did it come from? Where did it come from? And I say, it happens because we're preoccupied with the wrong thing. We're preoccupied with how our spouse should make us happy. We're preoccupied with the status our spouse ought to give us as a married person in the world. And I am sad to say in the church. 
that we can somehow, we look for a spouse, if there's single, single people, if we look for a spouse and we're based on the foundation that this will complete me in some way. And if you're married, you view your spouse that they should complete you in some way. Listen, it happens. And Jesus would have us all, instead of scoff at the Pharisees, to make us reflect on what are we preoccupied with in our understanding of marriage and what foundation are we standing on in our marriage? Is it looking back at the institution of marriage where we have been called to leave our families and cleave together and create a new family, a new societal unit and to live together and to love one another and to serve one another? Is that the foundation that we have? Because if so, it'll lead down, in a minute we'll get to a path of flourishing. But if that is not our foundation and we are misunderstanding what marriage is or trying to find a loophole to check that box but live however we want, then we're being a Pharisee and we don't understand grace. Now the last thing I'll say is this. Based on lust, which was last week, I just don't, I feel as though I, have, I need to say this um, to connect the two. Because obviously lust and divorce and then this clause of sexual morality, they go together. And I just have to say, if the word sexual morality is a very broad word, it's where we get the word pornography from, and I would just say that any spouse, whether it's a book that you read or an image that you look at, if you are not pursuing sexual wholeness in your own life, you cannot have a healthy marriage. You can trick yourself into whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's just this thing over here. You're being foolish. And you are on the wrong foundation. And one day, you might wake up and say something like, I just don't think this marriage is working out. I don't think I'm getting out of this marriage what I need. And so you can say, we have a good marriage, and I have this thing over here. I check the box, Jesus. I provide for my family, right? I, I do everything I need to. I'm not actually carrying out the act. I check the box, but I'm going to live like I want over here. You cannot have a healthy marriage, and you can't be healthy. God help us all. Next, oaths. So, how is telling the truth in oaths related to this teaching on divorce and being a whole person? So again, the Pharisees are trying to make the law of God more manageable. They're trivializing the law. So the problem was, in this instance, they had devised an elaborate system of getting around the basic command of telling the truth. That's what they had done. You guys, this is insane, okay? So... What they had done, and we're going to read this in Matthew 23, it's like children. What they had done is they had said, they had this, created this system where the closer you were to swearing by God's name, the more binding your oath was, okay? But if you were skilled at speaking in a type of indirectness or roundaboutness or circumlocution, you were not bound by that oath. So let's go to Matthew 23. I'm going to start reading a few verses starting in verse 16. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, 
If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So this, this is what they're saying. You go into an oath, a promise with someone that you're gonna pay them a certain amount of money for a service that they provide. Then when they come to collect on that service, you say, actually, I didn't entirely say that. You see, what I did was I actually took an oath on the, the temple, but not on the gold of the temple. So I don't actually have to uphold my oath. Next time, you might want to listen a little more closely to what I'm saying, right? And Jesus says, you blind fool. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. So here's what Jesus is saying. First of all, the system is corrupt. And second of all, you did a really bad job of even creating the system because it breaks down in and of itself. You see, it's like children. It's like children in this sense. Well, I know what I said, but my fingers were crossed behind my back. Or what I really said was, uh, I wrote this down because it's been so long since I've said it. It's a good one. Oh, yes. I said, cross my heart and hope to die, but I didn't say stick a needle in my eye. Sorry. Gotcha. Right? I mean, and Jesus just is flabbergasted at this crazy, specific, certain type of sophistry, right? That somehow you cannot be bound by your words because you have some elaborate system, right? It's incredibly elaborate and silly. And the reason is so that it can be manipulated and be gotten around, right? So in the same way, well, if I can make Moses say this, I can check this box and do what I want. If I can create a system where I can sort of speak out of one side of my mouth, but just in case something better comes up, I can go do this over here and go back on my word and feel good about it, right? We all have a tendency and a proclivity to just keep the minimum. And when we do that, we misunderstand grace. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus is against all oaths, okay? Quickly, God himself makes an oath in Hebrews 6. It says that in order to confirm his promise to Abraham, he swore it with an oath. Paul frequently says, God is my witness, which is oath language when he's proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we take an oath in a court of law, and all of this is fine and good. We do have to realize, though, by the way, that the only reason oaths exist is because of our heart disease in the same way that divorce is a concession. It's because of our heart disease. It's the only reason. Okay, so to say that I can just take, that I, well, that doesn't matter. Let me share an illustration. I think it might be clear. So I was in seminary and uh, I was in seminary and my gospels professor said this when we were to this point. It was so interesting. He said, um, Jesus teaches us in this passage when we know we have failed as a parent. And I was not a parent yet, but I thought, ooh, I should write this down. And he said, the first time your child says to you, daddy, do you promise? you know you have failed as a parent. And the reason is, is because they can't believe your word anymore unless you amp it up. 
unless you inflate your words. But you see, in our day and age, that's a great point because Jesus would tell us that we can be a contrast community like Dr. Al- Dr. Swain talked about. This idea that the church is to be a contrast community contrasted with the world, in the world, but a contrast. And for us, we can be that contrast community by simply speaking the truth. So a couple of questions. Are we the type of people who when people, when we say something to people, they walk away knowing that our word is faithful, that our word is our bond? Or do they walk away qualifying in their mind saying, well, you know, actually, she usually does exaggerate or he usually does exaggerate. So we probably have to take that with a grain of salt, right? Or when we walk away, can our words be counted on for what we say? And when we relay information, is it gracious and as accurate as possible or not? Or do we say it in such a way where it makes us look good or we can maybe get out of any commitment or testimony that we gave about someone else later? We can get out of it. We can sneak. I didn't say it exactly like that. Remember, this is how I said it. This is what I said. Now listen, of course, we all make mistakes. We oversleep. We fail to put something on our calendar. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is as a general rule, when we say something, can people count on it? Or would even our closest friends and family say, well, unless they get really intense about it, it's probably about a 50-50. Or you got to tax what they say by, you know, 20% because they inflate their language so much. Listen, I just think it's amazing that we can be such a contrast community in this culture around us just by telling the truth. And you know what? We should be people of the truth because we serve the God of truth. And so, remember, the evasive, I should say, the, the desire to create a system to evade our own words is a very dangerous place. It's like asking, Jesus, is it okay to divorce for any reason? Where's the loophole? What's the minimum I got to do here? To make you okay so you don't curse me and do all that stuff, but so that I can still live how I want. Now we'll close with this, just a few moments. Like I said, most of the sermon was on the first principle, which was uh, the wrong preoccupation based on the wrong foundation leads to a foolish path. But I would say that the other side is true as well. The proper preoccupation based on the proper foundation leads to a flourishing path. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is about the proper preoccupation, the kingdom life, standing on the proper foundation. The Beatitudes are about becoming a virtuous person, practicing the right things, focusing and being preoccupied on the right things so that you become the type of person who loves the right things and therefore flourish. And then Jesus says, as my people are being transformed, they will be salt and light in the world by preserving and by shedding light into the darkness. But if you think that really what the Christian life is about is keeping God at bay by fulfilling his contract and living how you want, then you, you can't be a flourishing person and you are not in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus is also saying we can experience God's kingdom life now. And in fact, that's a big part of the sermon. He didn't say in the future, he said, you are now salt and light. 
You are now to become increasingly my kingdom people. And so we will be preoccupied with something. And what Jesus is doing is he is leading us to be preoccupied with the right things. And when we're preoccupied with the right things, we all of a sudden find ourselves increasingly standing on the right, proper foundation. And as that is happening and we're being changed and transformed, it will continually lead us in the path of flourishing as opposed to the path of foolishness. And focus is a powerful thing. So when I say preoccupation, I almost use the word focus. I'm using them as synonyms now. Focus or preoccupation is a powerful thing because it shapes what you see. You think you see with your eyes? You see with your perceptions. You see with your mind, which is one of the reasons why it has to be transformed. And so as we continue to focus our minds and, and then our hearts and all of who we are on these right things, we will find ourselves more and more sturdily on the right foundation and le being led and leading ourselves down the path of flourishing. So the things that we're preoccupied or focused on will shape and direct our lives and it will shape our assumptions and expectations. See, Jesus is calling his kingdom people to focus on the proper foundation of God's kingdom commands. And remember what Jesus said at the beginning? He said that blessed are the pure in heart or the focused in heart. You could say it that way. The single-minded. Blessed are they, why? For they will see God. You see, when we are preoccupied with the right things, we will see God. It will lead us to God. For example, when we continue to be preoccupied with marriage as it's defined, it will lead us to long to be a type of spouse that we see in the scriptures. And what does Paul say and what does the whole Bible teach? That God is the perfect husband who loves his bride, who does not forsake his bride, who does not break his vows, who pursues her even when she is unfaithful. That is a godly husband. That is God. And as we focus on that, it will lead us to self-sacrifice in our marriage. It will lead us to not expecting maybe the types of things we expect. We may actually become not the center of the universe. And what about with our words? When we continue to focus on truth-telling and peacemaking, as Jesus talks about, we will see Jesus because it will lead us to the word of truth, the perfect truth-teller who perfectly displays truth and integrity. And you see, this is the blessing of the kingdom, is that the God of the kingdom, the king of that kingdom, is the perfect husband. The king of that kingdom is the perfect truth teller. And we can trust him. We are on a firm foundation. We are on solid rock. And as this happens, we'll continue to see what we desire in our own lives and in the lives of others changed. See, this isn't just for us. The table's not just for us. It is for us to be nourished and then to go to our neighbors and say, I know where the truth is. I know where the truth teller is. I know the perfect husband who will love you and keep his promises and commit to you and provide for you. And it's here at this table. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you that you keep your word. We read it in the call to worship. You keep your promises. 
You never forget your promises. We read all throughout your scripture that your people are adulterous people. We have lying tongues, and yet you continue to pursue us. You forgive us. But let us properly understand grace. Let us know that we ought not to check a list and have a life of contract keeping, but give us a life of response and gratitude. Help us see your beauty and your love for us, and may that transform us to send us out as salt and light into the world, as good neighbors, as good brothers and sisters in this community, as good spouses, as good friends, that we would be a contrast community, a flourishing community, a whole community.